In part two of our podcast about VFX, Matthew Bristow recalls his time at both London-based One of Us and Technicolor, where he was head of production on movies such as Jurassic Park Fallen Kingdom in 2018, Star Wars The Last Jedi in 2017, Fantastic Beasts The Crimes of Grindelwald 2018, and the first two seasons of Netflix's The Crown. In his current role as managing director at London-based animation studio and post-house Jellyfish Pictures, he discusses his latest feature project for DreamWorks Animation and the unique way that Jellyfish's people have had a hand in deciding which productions to develop internally. Listen in to find out more. You also had worked on Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom in 2018, which that was pretty amazing as well. Yeah, I, again, you know, we were a reasonably small part of that. It was our first real sort of creature work on some of the smaller dinosaurs as well. I mean, you know, you've got your huge big set pieces as well, but we're also, you know, we're beginning to get a reputation for really good environment and environment design work as well so some of the big sort of wide shots as the the sort of the main street with the um the visitor center all destroyed and destructed that was our work as well and we were really proud of that and then we also had some of the you know kind of smaller dinosaur work as well where ilm would deliver us deliver us the rig and we would sort of animate it as well and give the you know we'd have to give throughout the sensitivity of the, the team that one of us as well would be able to give a you know, real nice performance and character to those as well so it's great it's also great for the community within the studio as well to to always be working on really interesting and exciting projects and you know i, I remember with the with the, it's really interesting how the industry has changed um over, even over the last two or three years as well there was you know before you know the the the, the huge rise in the likes of Netflix and Amazons and how we view material sort of on TV as well. It was very, there was a very clear delineation. You had film, which is theatrical, then you had television. And the budgets that, that were massively different. You know, television were often having to produce, you know, lots and lots of material. So if you've got a 12-part show, you've got to really churn through, you know, a lot of material in a short space of time and the budgets are really quite small as well. So you could go back and look at TV shows from just 25, 10 years ago and think, yeah, you can see that they didn't have a lot of money for the visual effects in those shows compared to now, but actually they, that's what they have. That's all that was, was allowed for it at the time as well. And amongst the, the artists as well, the, the, the people who, who create the visual effects as well, some, you know, were like at that time, well, I don't, I don't work on TV, I work on, on film. And then The Crown came along. And then, you know, for the show, then we were producing, you know, world-class visual effects, BAFTA award-winning visual effects, which is what we, we won it for that year as well, on an episodic TV show. And the change for the artists was like, well, actually, you know, I don't mind if it's film or TV because this is really great work. And artists all want, always want to work on really cool shots in really sort of great films as well. And all of a sudden, the, 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 the boundary between what was TV, you know, and film just completely blurred and disintegrated almost quickly as well. And we look at, you know, high-end TV now, like Game of Thrones. These, these shows have got, they are cinematic masterpieces. They are, every single one is a feature film. You know, and the budgets match that as well. And through, you know, the, you know, what you know, great companies like Netflix and Amazon, just to name but two as well, their budgets have also increased quite, you know, significantly for one for visual effects work within those projects. If you look at something like a Stranger Things season one compared to season three, you can, well, I, you know, for those of us who are perhaps more familiar with it, I can see the, the budget change and that, because the visual effects of the quality has gone up a level, there's more of it, it's more sophisticated, which is really, really great for our industry as well, that it's not just about, you know, producing, you know, kind of high quality for, for feature films, it's also for, you know, the OTT producers, well, something like a Mandalorian and, you know, all of these projects now, it's just, it's a real game changer within our, within our visual effects and, and post-production community. Absolutely. And what are some of the similarities and differences between serving as a consulting VFX producer on a feature versus a TV show? I think, well, it goes back to what, what I was just saying then, the, 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 the TV show, the episodic is, 
the, the schedules are very different and the, the production of those is very different as well. So you've, you know, you've, you're producing maybe, maybe there's 10, there's 10 parts. They, they might film them in blocks. So we'll have three blocks of three episodes per block. Each, each block or often each show may have a different director. So whereas on a feature film, you're, you're working with you know, one director or the producer, the post supervisor, one visual effects producer, there's a very team across looking at the, the arc of the whole thing. On, a, on, a, on an episodic show, even though you're, you're producing your, your, your visual effects and there's obviously there's a, there's a theme and a style and a visual look which runs through all of those across multiple episodes, you might then also be working with three, four, five, six, different directors as well. So that has its own unique challenging and how you um, produce that. You also might be working on, you know, on, it's the same on a like on a feature film, there may be three or four different visual effects companies or even more, 12 or 15 on, on some shows working on that, which will need to be tied together. And it can be the same for a TV show as well. Each episode may have a different, um, different visual effects team working on those as well. So they're just, you know, different challenges in different ways, but perhaps so often the biggest challenge that can still be with with TV with episodic as well. It can be the the schedule and the budget and making sure that you can still deliver the high quality and you know on a on a budget, but can be quite a difficult, challenging time frame as well. But you know, I think, but in terms of how we produce the the VFX and the role of the the VFX producer, it's 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 same you know you're often dealing with very similar similar beasts across yeah. those as well and it was interesting actually you you had mentioned prior to our podcast um on the previous call that sometimes some of the deadlines are really down to the wire for even oh. for feature films it's like the day before it's going to premiere you guys are working I, on a special I've, effect I've, I've worked on films where i uh ooh, I can't remember what was it. I think it might have been one of the trans. It was one of the Transformers movies, and the um, we'd done the stereo conversion on it and some other visual effects. This is when I was at Prime Focus, and the, um, the studio exec, who Corey Turner, who is a really great guy, had, had, had come over as well for the premiere, and he was at the premiere uh, of the film as well, and he started messaging. Uh, the director's giving notes so it's like hold on you're at the you're at the rehearsal for the premiere and we're getting notes so yeah you, you know you can you adapt and you do that as well um i've been on on shows um particularly in in in, in broadcasting tv where it was it was we, we were working in the uk the episode we were working on was airing in the states that night so there's a more than a day so you know you make advantage of the time zone and they they wanted to drop shots in and make changes to one or two shots that day as well so we were able to we had to digitally do it deliver it you know digitally send it over to to the studio to the studio in the state they had to cut it in and drop it in and do it that way but it's not just i've i, I even back in my days as a as a projectionist um, I remember where it was 24 hour party people, the Michael Winterbottom films and Michael Winterbottom. That cool movie? Really, really cool. But really, I, I, luckily enough, I did another film with him, Code 46, a really great, great filmmaker to work with and be part of his team as well. I, but I, I was yeah. running it as a projectionist and they wanted to remove a scene from the film. So I've got the 35 mil laced upon the projector and there was a scene they wanted to remove from the film. So we had to put it on the table, spool it back, literally cut it out, tape it back together, put it on the film and then run the film as well so yeah you can get you've got to, you've got to be adaptable i've learned that actually when i was i was at can in 2019 which strangely enough was the last time it was physically happening out in france and then people were saying that because uh, i guess tarantino's once upon a time in hollywood was premiering and there was a number of films people were like oh yeah they were working on it until like the day it <laughs> premiered yeah. at the festival yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's something I've had to do. Um, there's, you know, I, you know, I suppose through my experience of working on a lot of films with a lot of different filmmakers as well, you have to adapt to the to the director, to the creative. You're you're fulfilling their their vision, and you've got to to bend with that and adapt to that, and just try and you know make sure that they're they're having what. But there's, you know, you always some people maybe less experienced, you know, would say to me, Matt, why 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 can't they just lock the edit? What, what, I don't understand. It's like, well. Edits never lock. They'll keep 
can't you change it? We've just got to adapt to it, be able to deliver. I, I remember one of my favourite films to work on, which I really, I love the film, but I love the whole process of the filmmaking, was Fantastic Mr Fox with, with Wes Anderson. And I love stop frame animation. I was lucky enough to go down to um, Dreamworld Studios to, you know, to visit the set and see it being made. And just the, the attention to detail, the minutiae of everything that goes into a stop frame film, but also a Wes Anderson stop frame film as well, because the, 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 the minute detail that he pours into every single pixel on one of his films, it's incredible. It, it's challenging, but it's incredible. But the way Wes, we were doing the DI the, the, on, and you know you like to structure your day you know we start work in the morning we finish work at six o'clock and we do our post and we do our deliverables Wes didn't work like that and it was immediate obvious he would you know perhaps want to go to the theater in the afternoon or the cinema in the evening perhaps he'd want to come in and do a grade at you know one o'clock in the morning and you know the, I remember the producer saying to me just said look Matt this is Wes's world let's just go along for the ride and once you've you know, allowed yourself to go, I'm going to go along for the ride. It is a ride and it's fun as well. Yeah, it's, you know, you've, you've, it, it, it can be challenging, but the reward is worth it as well. He's a lovely filmmaker, really enjoyed those projects. And you come away thinking we delivered it. The film was great. And we've got some amazing stories that go with it because it was a bit bonk. I mean, Wes was, you know, he would come into, when the times that he did come into the studio, he was wearing the same corduroy suit as the Fox was wearing as well. And, just a unique filmmaker and you don't you don't you don't always get that as well so you have to you know embrace that and you know want to be with that and you, you just get the reward but yeah he was he was every he poured every ounce of you know detail into everything in that film that's, that's pretty cool and sort of segueing into working with directors over the years um could you share some of the stories about working with different types of directors and their different I think, styles? I, you know, sometimes on, on the pro side in the vision, some, you know, you, you have close interaction with the director and on so many other films, you are one of many thousands of people in that army to produce that film as well. So I guess the most, some of the most rewarding ones where you get to be, a little, be even in the, you know, a little closer and sometimes achieve that more on some of the DIs that I've done as well, because some directors are really collaborative. And I think one of the one of the favorite directors I've worked with um, a few times in the past is Danny Boyle. Um, I love one, Danny Boyle, by the way. Yeah, Danny, he's Huge a lovely, fan. really lovely guy, um, really collaborative. Um, even though he is a superstar director, really down to earth, you know, he would he would come to the to the studio and you know, often, you know, bring a packet of biscuits for the crew. He'd go off and you know, make everyone a cup of tea. And, you know, you, you, you felt, you know, you felt comfortable because that's how you produce the best work as well. You don't want people feeling on edge or anxious or, or nervous. You create an environment of, you know, kind of, of comfort to do the work. And that was, you know, Danny, you know, I was lucky enough to, like I said, with 28 Days Later, and then we went into Millions and uh, Sunshine as well. Sunshine was a huge visual effects movie that he did at MPC as well. And I think that was, you know, it was quite a challenge as well because of the scope of the of the work as well. But then also Slumdog Millionaire was just an absolute blast to work with Danny and his team on as well. Because what working with with directors like that, they they inspire everybody in the team as well to give to give everything to that. So you find yourself working collaborative with 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 like-minded people, no matter where you are in the process, whether it's the cinematographer, the editor, and, and particularly in a DI as well, or back in the, you know, I'd say the old days, a few years ago doing DIs, but you'd become this little unit for two weeks. They would, you're, you'd, you'd, you'd be part of the process, sort of maybe you do some camera testing earlier on, part of the process through the actual filmmaking and putting rough cuts together and grading those and delivering them. But it all really happened in the final few weeks when you're bringing all of that film together to deliver as well. So you're spending all day, every day in the, in the DI suite with the, you know, the cinematographer, the editor, the director as well. So you become, with, with really enjoy collaborative filmmakers like Danny and his team, you become part of that, that team as well. And it's really satisfying when at the end of that, you've produced a really stunning piece of work and I think for me Slumdog Millionaire is one of those because it was a really exciting film to work on it was challenging technically as well for all the different cameras that Anthony used to capture the performance on the streets of Mumbai 
Chris Dickens, the edit editor, did a great edit as well. And then it went on to be hugely successful. But it's the small things you remember on the way. After it had won, it had swept up at the BAFTAs. And I think this was pre-Oscars as well. The lovely thing that Chris, the editor, did, he'd won the, the BAFTA for, for best editing. He hired a room at the Groucho Club, which is a private members club in London, and took, took invited you know, the DI team, the editing team, just a small group of people to and put on a party for us to celebrate the film's success, which is a kind of a rare thing to do and a really nice and, you know, wonderful thing to do as well. So he wanted to celebrate his success with, with everybody that was a part of that as well. And you know, That's really sometimes cool. get that opportunity uh, to do that. But, you know, you know, directors carry you know, huge sort of weight on their projects as well, both creatively and technically. And, you know, they can often challenge everybody around them to produce their best, whether it's through the, the grade, through the, through the visual effects and through the performance as well. And even, you know, quite hard, challenging movies can be, you know, really enjoyable as well. And, um, you know, even, yeah, I mean, there's, you know, films like, you know, Gravity was, was quite a challenge as well, but it was hugely rewarding at how, the end of that as well. How would you contrast Alfonso Cuaron's style versus like a Doug Lyman or a Shekhar Kapoor? Well, I didn't, I, I think, you know, it's been a, I'm trying, with Shekhar and Elizabeth, he was, he was really sort of warm and engaging. I think on, on something like a, um, an Edge of Tomorrow with, with actually with Doug Lyman, we, we, we had, because of the the scale of that, we um, didn't really have that much contact with, with 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 Doug on that movie. You're working. We were working with the visual effects team, the visual effects supervisor, um, and you know working closely with them. And they were they were the guy. You know, Doug's got he's got he's carrying this whole thing as well. He's got his team around him, and that's the team. And then you you know they communicate with everybody around that. And then you've got you know other directors like you know, Guy Ritchie. I've been lucky enough to to work a couple of times as well and those those shows the guy richie movies they're they're bonkers they're absolute roller coasters they really are i love the gentleman that came out too last year i thought that was really yeah good. he was yeah. he's when we were in doing post on aladdin and doing the di on aladdin at technically he was shooting that at the same time as well so he was running the two two projects in tandem so he would come off offset of of a gentleman into the into the grading theater for to review stuff on aladdin and you know give us notes and then Nice. Off we go again. He's, yeah, yeah. You, yeah. Saw, you saw him snip. We got you. Just seen him snippets. That's that's yeah, what's pretty exactly. cool about uh, that. That I love about certain directors like Guy Ritchie. He could do the gentleman. They could do Aladdin. Same thing with Doug Lyman. I mean, he did Swingers, but then he did yeah. Edge of Tomorrow. So that's pretty yeah. incredible to me when when somebody could just get outside of their comfort zone and really jump around in different genres. I think I think we 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 love to see that from from people as well. I mean, you know some. You know, some directors are, you know, they, they've, they work within their own style and genre that they've created and create amazing stories regularly within that. But it is, it is, you know, like, you know, I think one of my, you know, one of my favourite, you know, you know, two of my favourite films in recent years, well, I didn't work on, but I really enjoyed is something like uh, Jojo Rabbit and um, Thor Ragnarok. Same director, totally diverse, you know, projects as well, but each has a, there's a, there's, they're very special films as well, and, and you know, kind of rightly regarded for what they are. But it's great when you see a director um, be able to produce, creatively produce very, very different things, but you know, but both can make us laugh and make us cry and make us really feel an emotion as well. Because I think whatever the film is, you know, you want to feel, you want to feel something when you come out of it. I think. Absolutely. So going back to summer 2018 with. With everything that's happened in the world, it seems back in the day <laughs> yeah. at some <laughs> in a strange way. <laughs> you ret yeah. you returned to Technicolor as head of production there. Could you walk us through some of your involvement with uh, Fantastic Beast and yeah, as well as I, the two popes? The fantastic the the the, the machine around, but it was really interesting. It was to juxtapose. I I just left the world of DI in two thousand and ten, and it was you know it was you know it was very it was, it was a lot less technical back then as well i think with the you know in in a you know a, a world of digital capture 
and the digital cameras that we use, uh, the, the scope of a lot of the visual effects movies as well. It's become, yeah, it's really quite a very technical, pro it's always technical process, but, but times sort of, sort of 10 now as well. And something like a Fantastic Beast is a, is a machine of a, of a movie as well. And the um, colorist at Technicolor, Peter Dahl, over many years had built uh, a sort of a really sort of sophisticated way of um, essentially, a, lo a lot of a DI is balancing out before you get to the creative stuff. You've got to, whatever's captured on set, however that's put together, you're either balancing ca cameras, scenes, data, all of that, and then you get to do the creative work as well. And what, um, what was interesting there was that the, the, the film, by the time we actually came to the final DI, all of that work had really been done. So the two or three weeks that uh, the colorist has in the suite with the director to grade the movie, you're actually doing the creative work as well. You're not wasting the director's time with, you know, I remember back in the day in DI, you'd be like, you know, they'd come in, you spend a week of just balancing it out and the director sat there going, when do we get to do the fun stuff? Well, I've just got to get all these scenes looking or you'd have to book time ahead of that to do that. So, so Beast was really, and the, 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 the leap in technology in delivering that was, was incredible. So it, the, what the process allowed there was for the built-a process at Technicolor to allow for, you know, they could, they could cut and edit until quite close to final delivery. The bulk of the grading work could be done so that in that final process, the creative work can be done and then it can go into production and by that I mean all the deliverables almost immediately as well so you actually the the, the gap between final sign off of the movie and in theatres uh, ready for broadcast on DVD all of those has got a lot shorter as well and that was impressive the process that Technicolor put in place there to be able to do that and Fantastic Beast was a great showing of that as well it went from final grade hit the button render create Blu-ray version, create your film version, theatrical master, your TV master, your airplane master, all the different versions, your iPhone master, all of these, then then come off the production line really, really quickly as well. And that was, that was sort of interesting. And then you've got a film like The Two Popes, for example. It's very, very different in its, you know, in its creation. It's a very, it's a performance piece, predominantly between our two, two characters, some wonderful scenes and set pieces in there. But it's all about, you know, enhancing that, performance as well and our director and uh, cinematographer were with us sort of every day as well it was a very different process there and then Aladdin which is my last film that sort of overseeing the post there as well that was a you know the, the the DI started in London then we moved the DI to Los Angeles so we had our, our colorist our color grader was in the Los Angeles office but our director and creative team were in the London office so my working day was then from 10 o'clock in the evening till four o'clock in the morning as we were on LA time to do the grab. But we're able to, it's, it's a, you know, the technology enables us to essentially broadcast the material from the LA office to the London office. So you could grade, you're physically controlling the buttons and grading in LA, but you're seeing everything and controlling it on the screen in London as well. So that was a really different, you know, not a really unique way of working as well. That is pretty cool. And Speaking of Aladdin, I noticed that there is definitely a, a trend of making live action films that were once animated films. Do you, what is that Disney all about? Disney, well, I, think, I think, you know, I, I think, you know, there's, I suppose it's with a lot of films that we grow up with and that we, you know, we kind of love. They, I mean, I've, my, my kids have grown up as well. If I, if I wanted to show them a great film from the 80s, they're like, it's old fashioned, you know, I'm not watching your old fashioned films, you know, even though they're great films. So, and I think with, you know, films like that, which are, are like, I think there's something quite fun in bringing them back to life in a, in a kind of a, a photo real world. Some do it with more success than others. I think that's absolutely true as well. So, and actually, you know, think, you know to, just talking to you, it, it's almost making me realize the answer because we've, we've come leaps and bounds with the world of VFX. So, you know, all these things are now possible thanks to the work that you do and, you know, companies... Yeah. I think I think though with with for me I think sometimes we can be we can be too VFXy. I think you know for I you know I love you know sort of you know the whole Marvel universe as well. There's some amazing films, and I I you know I mean wonder at the VFX there, and they really do sort of you know tell this amazing story. These create these worlds which you which you couldn't necessarily create. But uh, when I was at one of us, 
quite often from a visual effects point of view, we'd start off the process with what can we do with the least amount of visual effects as possible, which might sound really unusual for a visual effects company, but you, 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 you go back to, we don't, you don't want it to be really VFX, so you want it to feel really, really natural. So you start with what can we capture in camera and then how can we augment that as well? So then you start layering VFX onto that. Obviously, with the Marvel Universe, it's a universe that has to be created digitally as well. And I think there's been, you know, in with some, a lot of the worlds that have been created in those are really quite stunning visually on the cinema screen, on that cinematic universe. We've created incredible, which yes, we know their visual effects as well, but they're just really amazing shots as well and amazing sequences. They're quite, you know, breathtaking in their, in, in their scope. Um, but yeah, I think it's, you know, it's, it's good to, to you know, not be so VFX-y as well. A, a film like 1917, for example, which is a really quite technically challenging film in itself with, you know, a whole bunch of visual effects in there as well. You, you, don't, you don't feel it because you're just following this incredible story. Yet the work that has gone into around that to create those that continuous scene as well. It's quite incredible. Roger Deakins is one of my favorite DPs and he's, yeah, he's fantastic. Brilliant. He's yeah, such absolutely. an awesome job. Yeah, yeah. He really is, yeah. You know what I'm curious about? Do you, do you guys ever get involved? Bef I mean, obviously it, it's it's a post-production process, but do you ever get involved before with certain filmmakers before the shoot to kind of map out um, how things are gonna yeah, go? Yeah, like on, on, any, on any, you know, you, you, you bring your, yeah, you, the earlier you're on board on any film, whatever stage you are in the process only enhances the work that comes out to the end as well. So the visual effects team will be on board from the beginning as well. So you're even at, you know, at script stage, you're, you're breaking down scripts, you're looking at scripts, you're making decisions, uh, both creatively, um, budgetary, and you start building from, so, in, you know, the, the, the film starts with an idea, starts with a script. The visual effects team is there right from the very beginning. On, on, you know, most films, right from the beginning. There are a bunch of films where it's, you know, visual effects is low on, on, on what they have in those as well, and they'll go away and shoot them, and they'll come to a visual effects company and go, oh, we need to remove this, we need to add that, can we do this? But it, it's always better to engage with your visual effects company early on in the process as well, because you can make sometimes better decisions. And then, you know, all these films, they go through the process of previs, post-vis, it's about giving the, the filmmakers and allowing them to make the best decisions for the film as early as possible as well, particularly when, you know, most of your film is on a green screen. Um, and now with the, the use of virtual technologies as well, we're able to project onto LED walls environments that we've created digitally so that in, on capture you're not necessarily having the green screen you've already got your world in the background there as well. And that's something that was done, you know, achieved a lot of Mandalorian recently. So this is where the technology is, is taking us. Uh, but yeah, it's always, and even, you know, on a, on a, you know, on a DI or any process, you, you want to, you want to like from the director or the creative's point of view as well, you want to be talking to your team as early on as possible as well. Yeah. Because you are a team. It's a really, you know, we keep saying it, but it's a very, it is a collaborative process and that team you want on board from day one. That makes perfect sense. Instead of just the, the cliche of let's just figure it out and post. That's the word. That's, that's when you make bad decisions. <laughs> that's when you end up making expensive bad decisions. Cause you think, well, let's, let's leave that to the end. And it doesn't, even with stereography as well, like it, even though it was a post process, you shoot the film and then you convert it to stereo. Very early on, we were getting involved in a small way in films, Early, we would go on myself and Richard would often go on set and you know they want for particularly for key scenes as well how best can we manage this scene to get the best out of the stereo for it you know foreground background mid-ground how can we construct it and then we could you know it's good for the stereographer and the team to get an idea of what the set looks like so that we when we go for that we've got a feeling for it but also to you know offer sort of key decision-making in the setup of that as well to really get the most out of it. So where you bring your team on, whatever stage that is, it, it just helps. So uh, going back to Roger Deakins, actually, on his podcast, he was uh, speaking about VFX in general with Sam Mendes, the director of 1917, amongst so many other films that they've worked on. 
Um, Sam Mendes said that the majority of visual effects work in movies is set extensions and or photo real con- continuity, uh, continuation of landscapes, background removals, and that <coughs> sort of thing. W- would you agree with that? It's a huge part. Yeah, absolutely. Wherever, and that, because that will take you, whether it's a period piece, even a modern day piece as well, you can't always film where you want to film at the time you want to film. Um, and also you, you, you might want to, you know, you just want to augment it and enhance that. I know I worked on the, um, the first season of The Alienist. With The Alienist, it was all about recreating New York at the turn of the century. Um, much of the, a lot of the action took place at rooftop level. Obviously, New York skyline, very different then than it is now as well. So we had to recreate all that. Um, but the, the showrunner, Ben Rosenblatt, the creative team, want that they were painstakingly into making it as realistic as possible. For example, we would spend a lot of time saying, going through, okay, well, if we're on this roof here and we're facing east across the Bowery, then the, the Statue of Liberty would be this many degrees to the west. So in, in terms of our visual, visual recreation of that, we had to make sure that we were accurate in terms of the location of all of these things. Now, you could argue, well, well who's going to know? But that's, that's what you put into filmmaking as well. We know, you know, we know that it's real and it's accurate and it's honest. So all of those skylines were all sort of, uh, digitally recreated a huge amount of research then goes into those to ensure okay well what did they actually look like so there's a lot of photo research so that when we're creating the water towers the flags the skyline it's accurate as is possible to what was there at the time and that happens in so many films and in t- i mean even in you know more so in, in tv drama anything that's not set today that's set anywhere in the past whether it's the even the 90s, the 80s, the 70s, whatever, wherever you go back, it will be as, as exactly as, as he said in your podcast, augmented and enhanced or recreated as well. And also, quite often you're still filming on set, but you want it to feel like a location. So as your, your two characters are performing on a set and you want to see miles of open fields behind them, that all then is digitally recreated and, and put into those shots as well. Uh- that actually leads to something that I was just thinking about is how often do you interface with uh, the production designer? Uh, again, all the time. Yeah. You know, the, the, that's it. So on, on, and when, you know, some of, you know, most of the, the sort of the, 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 the bigger projects as well, the standout sort of theatrical films, the, 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 the consultation between the production designer and the VFX supervisor and the VX team, there's a there's a, such a crossover there as well and there's such a collaboration as well. So you're you're part of that team. You know, yeah, you, you're there, you're in the, you know, on the set, you're in the studio, you're part of the makeup, you're already ready creatively and artistically mapping out the visual look of that as well. That's that's something I've uh, as I've gotten more into more into filmmaking that I've had just a lot more respect for is just the production yeah. design and just the whole research that goes into that whole aspect of you, it. You feel, you, you know, you wonder why when you watch a film, you know, you think, well, why, why was that so good? You know, it's the performance, it's other things, but when you might not necessarily be able to articulate it, but you can feel the detail that's gone into everything that's in there as well. And it just makes it a richer experience, doesn't it? And you, you, <laughs> totally. you don't, it's not tangible, but you feel it. I'm not going to name the company, but I, I was a filmmaker for a large company. It was a technology company. Um, and a lot of times they, they, they didn't have huge budgets for me to work yeah. and produce on projects. And it was sort of like a one-man army. Oftentimes yeah. we were shooting, editing, doing everything. And I remember one time being in a meeting where they were like, you know, how do we do videos like this? And they showed me in a, a video where somebody was in the Arctic and there were polar bears Meanwhile, I'm filming stuff in office settings. I'm like, well, if you send me somewhere <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> where there's polar bears, then I could show you projects like that. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I get it all. You know, often you, you you meet with filmmakers, and they 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 you first of all you discuss okay the artistic vision of the project as well, and you've got some incredible. And then the question always is, well, what is your budget? And then, you know, you very quickly realize your budget isn't even close to your vision. So then you have to start the, okay, well, what, what could we give you 
for that budget as well. And then it becomes that balancing act of trying to meet the creative demands. But somebody's got to pay for that. So it's got to fit within that budget as well. And it's great when the two are aligned, you know, when the budget matches the creative brands, because then you can do real magic as well. The biggest challenge is then when the, the creative vision is way beyond. I, I worked on a film years ago, and I won't name the film, but it was a period film, it's a set piece film, an incredible script, really, really wonderful script as well. And read the script beforehand, and there were so many just really visual set pieces in the film. And uh, the budget was just getting chopped away and chopped away throughout the whole process. And almost by the time we got to the final film, it was just the characters talking about something that had just happened. So you didn't get to see the, you know, the the exploding car. You'd have the two characters going, wow, that was terrible. The car just exploded. What are we going to do? Because they didn't have the budget to actually create it. So it's a real shame when when you, you're on a project and you think oh, it, it could be so much more, you know, so much Absolutely. more than, than, than what we have. I, I always... Uh, look at the adage, you can't do something fast, cheap, and good. Could be two out of the three, but not three yeah, out of the three. Two, exactly. That's, it still it still rings rings true today, I think. So you're currently heading up Jellyfish Pictures, and could you tell us about some of the recent projects you've been involved well, with? Well, Jellyfish is a, you know, this, it's an incredible company, and, and you know, I'm very proud to be a part of it as well. It, it does, it, it's it's a number of things. It's, it's, a, it's still an independent company, it's still owned you know, by the same owner who set it up 20 years ago. So that has a unique um, aspect about it as well. You know, you're not part of a larger corporation or a larger division as well. Um, it's, a, you know, Jellyfish, you know, it's been producing visual effects for many years. It worked on three of the most recent Star Wars films, you know, amongst a whole bunch of other stuff. But it's also an animation company as well. And it's something that um, has grown in scope within the company over the last few years. And we're actually... We're right in the process now of delivering uh, a full feature animation for DreamWorks. I can't tell you any more than that, but what a what a company to be collaborating with and, and working on in, in terms of feature animation. There's there's only a few really standout companies: Pixar, DreamWorks, Disney, you know, to name but three as well. And so we we're coming to the end of this huge um, full feature. DreamWorks which has been massively exciting and animation is it's something that I've not worked in so I'm always you know as we've sort of gone through this pod, uh, podcast as well and talked about the different aspects of my career it's really great at this point as well to be engaging on a new journey um, with animation and it's just a very it's a very different obviously different process the you know different talent is involved there's a real crossover with visual effects as well so it's not Sort of so far removed from that as well, but but with animation, um, because you you are simply because you are creating ev everything, you're you're working, you're always working closely with the directors and the filmmakers as well. You are there is no sort of on set capture. There's no cinematographer going on for it's storyboarding it, building it from the ground up, and every performance. Within a, within a character in an animated sequence is captured and created by that artist as well. So it's a, even, again, it's a hugely collaborative, really interesting, really exciting. And yeah, that's what we're, what we, what we're working on at the moment. So um, I think if we speak again, you know, a year from now, Zeph will be talking about even more animated projects that we've completed. That's pretty cool. And you mentioned earlier that Jellyfish's employees have a role in picking what projects end up on the company's development slate uh we we do yeah with, with the animators as well we have a we have a, a process in in-house which we call jellyfish bloom where we once a year will invite because every animator is a storyteller they, everyone's creative they've got their own they they doodle they sketch they create their own films their own short pieces as well because animators animate that's what they do they create characters and bring them to life and so every year we'll invite the team to submit ideas for a whether it's a, a one-off film for a series, um, some characters. And then we invite outside experts, so really sort of famous um, animation filmmakers and directors and producers to judge judge what we've presented to them as well. And then from of those, we'll take the, the winner and put it through our development slate. And that means we then 
we'll, we'll storyboard it, we'll create a visual Bible, which is a breakdown of these are the characters, this is a story arc, we'll do the artwork as well. And then we essentially take that to, to market, to distributors, to TV channels, to, to, um, to producers as well, to, to, to look for funding and support in taking it to series. And we've got a whole, we've got about seven or eight pro projects in our animation slate. All of them now have been picked up uh, at some levels by whether it's toy manufacturers or broadcasters as well. And some of these are now going into, will be going into production. And then, so for, a, for an animator or an artist, what an opportunity to, to perform your idea and then have the company that you work for help get that on screen or on TV as well. It's really, it's a really great opportunity, but also for us as a company as well, we want to always, our, our, our team, our, our artistic team are the life of what we do as a company as well. So you want to them to be feel creative, be creative. And we've, we, we do that, in, we're all obviously all out of our studios at the moment and everybody's working from home, but we still created a, an environment that allows them to produce their best. We've recently, just before the pandemic, moved into a brand new studio in London as well, which was purpose-built, but built around creating the best environment for people to do the best work in as well. Because often in the visual effects community, it's room upon room of artists at desks, headphones on, in front of their monitor, digitally creating stuff. And they don't necessarily have the best environment. You, you almost do it in spite of the environment that you're in. So it's always great to have artists working in an environment that supports that creativity, which is what we have in Jericho. Well, I really love how the, you, you guys foster such a collaborative and creative environment it's crucial it's, it's such a it's it's a heart of of what we do as well and it also makes it fun you know one thing one of the things i've learned and tried to create it everywhere i've worked and wherever i've worked on as well you've you got to have fun as well you've got to be you know you, you've got to enjoy going to, to work every day and you know produce it yeah it's got to be it's got to be fun and you Absolutely. want people to enjoy coming there to do it as well and as, as the leader on that team as well you have to try and inspire and encourage that and, and make sure that people have an environment that they're happy doing what they do that's so important i think about that as a creative as well because a lot of times we're pushing ourselves to the limit in the first place yeah. of how many hours are we working yeah. on things so if it's not something that's fun or fulfilling then then what's the point of doing it <laughs> I've, I've worked on some really tough really really tough projects um, working in your production team, you're working, you know, long hours, long days. It feels like you're never going to make that deadline. And it's really physically and mentally challenging as well. But you're also able to create and making an effort to create an environment which is still fun, which is still challenging. You come away from it and thinking, yeah, that was tough, but boy, it was fun as well. And this, the, the worst projects are. And I've been at places where, you know, the, the culture isn't as good as it should be. And you can, it can still be hard and challenging, but it's not fun and yeah. it's not rewarding. And that's what really, you know, really pushes people out of the industry as well. And, you know, that's and not. That's a great point, Matthew, because I actually mentor film students. I'm, I'm fortunate enough to do that. It's through this program called Film Connections, where aspiring filmmakers are really trying to, uh, they get paired up with people that are actually working in the yeah. industry. And I always tell my students that, you know, sometimes each individual part of filmmaking could feel tedious, you know, so you always have to think about the bigger picture, you know, because each, each individual part could in the moment feel really challenging or really difficult. So you always have to kind of scale back and just think about the bigger picture. But it seems like you, you guys make such a creative in environment like that, like really fosters that. Creativity. Seth, you, you, you've, you've absolutely hit the nail on the head there as well, because it does feel you know, like it's an upward, like you're pushing a, pushing a, what was it someone said, pushing a, pushing a, um, pushing a mattress up a spiral staircase, you know, <laughs> if you've ever tried to do that, it's not, <laughs> I, it's I not can... easy, and it's really hard, I remember the same, it was on the, um, the Deathly Hallows part two as well, you know, I could see my team were, you know, under pressure, and it was really hard, and it's just taking that moment to say to the shooter, stop, step back a bit, breathe, take it in, I know it's hard, but it, we will get to the end, but you are working on the biggest film on the planet. And when that goes out there, you'll forget 
all of this. And I remember it was, we delivered all of our shots, but you're still waiting for the director to give it, yep, yeah, it's approved. And then you can, you've, you've finished, you've done, because there's always a note, there's always a last minute, you know, kind of, and we, we were, we were taking everyone out, out to the pub in Soho and we're all outside the pub, you know, waiting to hear, hear words that, you know, the final shot had been approved. And it was like, I don't know if you've been outside a bar when there's a, the sports games going on and someone scores and there's a huge cheer. It was like that. Sure. It was like, oh, we finished, you know. And it was, then people could really celebrate and enjoy it because they played their part in delivering this massive, massive film. And then when you do that, you forget all of those long hours and all of the pain and the hard work as well because you're in that moment and you know you've done it and that's the inspiring thing about it and that's what I love about the industry that I've been lucky enough to be a part of for such a long time as well that it it, it is you do get have those opportunities and you do have those moments as well and as you're doing Zeph with with your, your mentoring as well it's important that we pass that on to the to the next generation as well because I've learned from you know, people that I looked up to early on in my career, whether it's colleagues or supervisors or even some of the filmmakers that you work with as well, you, you, you always try and take what was best about that and keep it and then pass it on to somebody else as well and then just keep learning. And you never stop, you never stop learning, but just take the good stuff, remember it and pass it on. Well said, Matthew. And what, what advice would you give to somebody that's, let's say, embarking on a career in VFX? I, 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 again, I've, I've given, I'm lucky enough to have been given sort of first opportunities to a lot of people as well. And that is to always, you know, be, be collaborative, always, whatever, whatever task that you're doing, because, you know, at the, the sort of bottom level as well, there is some fairly, whatever that task is, even if you're starting as a runner or if you're, you know, in, in rotor always do what you do well and work hard because it will get noticed. When I was selling popcorn back in the day in, in the cinema, I was a really good popcorn seller. I worked hard at it. I sold a lot of popcorn. And then it's a pretty, always take care and always, and the, the, the nature of the industry is, is that quite often it, you can, it is, a, it is an industry where you can, your career can, you know, you can work up the, you know, you can work up the ladder if that's what you want and in the, with the right opportunity in the right place. Well, so many of our top producers in, in visual effects or VFX supervisors or even company owners started, everybody starts at the bottom. No one comes in at a senior level. Everybody starts at the bottom as well. So, but just work hard, take the care, ask the questions, you know, and it does get noticed or be, be reliable, be the one who, because quite often, you know, I find myself, you're having to turn to people to, you know, you know, something's a curveball's thrown at you and you need someone who you can trust who will be able to turn it around and do it. And when you've got those people on your team, you'll send the stuff their way and that's going to help them develop and grow. So I think in terms of your question, my advice is to just do what you do, do it well, take care of it. And, you know, then the opportunities you know, have the potential to come to you but also not don't be afraid to sort of you know make make decisions as well and you know it's good to experience different companies move around take when when you feel an opportunity coming take it you know I, I would you know people would often you know kind of people would say to me at the start you know they may be out of film school or college and they'd say well I don't want to be a runner I want to be a I want to be a compositor and it's like well you're not necessarily going to you know if you if you go to work at a sort of a big studio take the whatever opportunities there whether it's a runner whether it's a tech runner whatever it is because once you're in there then other doors and opportunities can open up for you as well but don't stand on the outside waiting for that perfect opportunity otherwise you'll you'll miss the bus just jump in there and that's what's happened to me over this i've been i've been in the right place at the right time but i've also made things happen as well and then also taken you know taken sort of you know big steps when i felt i've needed to because there might be an opportunity there and touch wood you know they keep they keep happening that's that's great advice outstanding advice and it seems like you actually have a, a and a, i can imagine that you seem pretty skilled that well you you're a great communicator so it seems like you you're pretty good at communicating with people that are layman's and probably people that are deeply technical as well <laughs> I've, I've my technical knowledge i've worked with um 
I'm not with really super technical, but naturally known as you've got super technical people, but I always have to try and distill it down into something that I can understand and then hopefully help others to understand as well. But you, you touched on the point there, communication, it's the singular most important thing in what we do. And that doesn't just apply to our industry, but so many others as well. Communic things can get lost with bad communication and that can cause, you know, projects can spiral out of control. People can leave all of these things you, you have and but you have to keep working hard at it and now so in in our current what's going on in the world we have to work even harder at communication because i can't have those corridor conversations anymore i can't just go and tap someone on the shoulder and say hey what do you think about every single bit of communication is a call it's a zoom it's a teams and that's hard but you just have to keep working that is hard yeah because i'm 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 a big face-to-face -face sort of guy so it's, it's been yeah. a it's challenging, but I think also in in a company as well, you've also got to you know encourage, make sure that everybody in the team can see the vision as well. What happens at some larger companies where they can go off the rails a bit is that the those sort of you know on the ground floor, on the shop floor, working hard. If they don't know what the overall goal and vision of the company is, they can go, become detached. So if they don't know who see, who's the senior management, who's the owner, what are they doing, what the decisions are, and as soon as your work, your team, your team vibes become detached, then they become less engaged, and then you can lose them as well. So one thing I've learned, it's something we do at Jellyfish, we did it at one of us, everywhere I've worked. I learned it from people who I who inspired me when I was starting on my career as well. It's always communicate, engage, talk to them. So whether you're the managing director or the runner. They should be able to talk to each other as well and that's something that i it's a philosophy that i've tried to carry through with everything so whether i'm you know the managing director but i'm need to be able to speak to and communicate with everybody on the team and they need to be able to have that openness with me as well otherwise we we lose track and it's something that i you know i, I always strive to achieve i may not always but I'll always strive to as well. And I think that's the key to success of any, and, and I say a company, but a film is a company as well. You build a company to produce a film. It's a team. The culture of that, the tone of it trickles down from the top. You know, someone like a, a Danny Ball will set a tone for his film that goes through all of the people as well. And, can in, and you know, the, the, the directors of these movies are inspiring everybody around them to produce their best work as well. So whether you're leader of a company, director of a movie, you want to be able to take those same into it each day that's so true i just heard elon musk in an interview say that yesterday he was like what is a company at the end of the day it's just a team of people that um ideally are like-minded in pursuit yeah. of a, a singular mission to either sell a good or service you know yeah so same thing yeah, with it, the film it's a collaboration totally and you're on and a film you know it can be many years in in the process as well so you, you build that the culture and the ethic within the within the film as well well, Matthew, I really appreciate you being on the Globe Screen Podcast. It was such an honor talking to you about your work and career. 